Treatment Considerations in Opioid Use Disorder, a conversation with Dr. Denise Vanacor. This webinar included a visual PowerPoint presentation. To view a video recording, visit the link in the description of this podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities. We encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communications specialist with Quality Insights, and today we'll be discussing treatment considerations in opioid use disorder. And now I'd like to introduce our guest today, Dr. Denise Vanacore. Dr. Vanacore is the Associate Dean and Professor of Nursing at Eastern University. She's also the Director of Hope Springs Health, providing integrated primary care and psychiatric mental health care, including medication-assisted treatment for addiction using Suboxone. Dr. Vanacore holds certification as an adult, family, and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She brings expertise in many clinical aspects, including diagnosing and treating primary care and mental health disorders, measurement-based care, management, and administration of primary and mental health care practices. Dr. Vanacore has worked extensively with general and psychiatric pharmacology. Dr. Vanacore, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Kathy. So we're going to start here um, by talking a little bit about opiates. I want to lay a little bit of groundwork as we think about what opiate pharmacology or psychopharmacology means. And so this really starts with when we think about opiates, natural, naturally occurring opiates. As we build on our naturally occurring opiates, we have some, so we see that we've got morphine as that basic base. Then we have some semi-synthetic opiates, and that includes things like heroin, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, oxycodone, and oxymorphone. And as we continue on that line, we see the synthetic opiates that we currently have, including methadone, meperidine, and fentanyl. And fentanyl is one of the most difficult things we have going on right now. As we begin to think about the pharmacology of at the receptor level, and we think about what medications do, we have three important things that that going on at that opiate receptor. We have some medications that can be what we call a full agonist, which is a, a substance that kind of mimics the action of the neurotransmitter or hormone. And it actually will kind of block opiates from getting there. And so again, the drug usually that's referred to is methadone. And and when we talk about medication assisted treatment, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone are usually our top three. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, what what the options are and what the easiest things are. Methadone does have a lot of uh, limitations with it, but it is what we call a full agonist. When we think about antagonism, so naltrexone is what we call an antagonist. And there's actually no activation at that site and it completely blocks the the opiate receptor. Buprenorphine works quite differently because it is a partial agonist. So it has partial activation at the site and partial blockade. And so a partial agonist are drugs that bind to and activate a receptor but they only have partial efficacy. And so that's what makes buprenorphine such a wonderful drug. Uh, When we think about medications for treatment for opiate use disorder. All right, so now that we've done the kind of housekeeping of pharmacology, let's take a minute 
and see where we've been with drug addiction treatment. Um, we call this the data waiver. And it started in 2000. And at that time, when buprenorphine came out, only qualified physicians after an eight hour training called an X waiver were permitted to prescribe. And it was a scheduled three narcotic at the time. And it was approved for opiate uh, use disorder. At the time that X waiver limited providers to the first year of having 30 patients, the second year of having hundred patients and the third year going up to 275. And while that is great, even with all the providers that we have in the United States, we need everyone functioning at the 275 mark to make a real good dent in medication assisted treatment. And we know that that wasn't happening. So as we had the first revision of what we call the CARA Act, or the, it was originally the DATA Act, we then expanded this in 2016. And that's when I really got involved with using buprenorphine and doing uh, prescribing for medication-assisted treatment. And this expanded the role of buprenorphine to both PAs and NPs. However, we needed 24 hours of training. And um, of course, if we had a state where we had to have a collaborating physician, we had to have a collaborating physician to do that. And so um, I've been prescribing buprenorphine since 2016 when this act changed. Now what has happened? Well, interestingly enough, we have the third step in this, and that happened on December 28th, and the, we eliminated that X waiver, which means that any provider, advanced practice provider or physician that has a DEA number, current active DEA number in that particular state, they may prescribe medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine. So what that did was now that opened up the door for many, many more patients to get treated. Um, and we know that for treatment, using buprenorphine is much easier than using methadone. Methadone can only be used in a clinic that is really credentialed by the federal government. So using methadone becomes really difficult and methadone has to be taken at the site and cannot be prescribed like we can with buprenorphine or naltrexone. Um, so let's take a minute now that we've heard about where we are with the act. We've heard a little about, about pharmacology and take a step now and let's look at what some of the opiate withdrawal symptoms are. Remember that um, most patients who are in opiate withdrawal don't feel well, but it often looks a lot worse than it is and it's not life-threatening. Withdrawal symptoms usually present themselves two to three half-lives after the last dose of an opiate has been given or been administered. So, um, and actually in the final area of this presentation, we'll talk a little bit about how we can manage these symptoms if we are seeing them in clinical practice. Our early or mild symptoms um, focus more on things like tearing, muscle aches, anxiety, uh, runny nose, um, often uh, sweating, perspiration, and then yawning and some insomnia. Um, and this usually happens usually 24 to 48 hours after the last dose of medicine. As we head past that 48 hour mark, and it, a lot depends on whether or not they've been taking a long acting medicine or a more short acting medicine. Then we have our later or more severe withdrawal symptoms, which include things like restlessness, agitation, abdominal cramping, diarrhea, dilated pupils, 
um, goose, like a goosefish, goosebumps, and nausea and vomiting. Um, so if we remember um, uh, what happens when patients take opiates, the basis for most of these withdrawal symptoms is the loss of the alpha adrenergic suppression that is provided by the opiate, which elicits that mellowing effect that they feel when they are actually taking the opiate. So on withdrawal, a state of alpha adrenergic hyperactivity sets in, and this causes this um, early to mild to later and severe uh, discomfort that patients will develop. So these are the symptoms that we see when patients are going through opiate withdrawal, and they can be easily managed by um, some prescription and over-the-counter medication that we'll talk about later. Moving on, I want to talk um, for just a minute about buprenorphine. Um, so this is the molecule. This is the semi-synthetic partial opiate agonist. So this is um, where it works. It was approved in 2002 as a schedule three with up to five refills, but due to the possibilities of diversion, uh, we tend to go either go month to month or maybe go um, one or two refills, depending on how patients are going. The medication does have a really high affinity for the receptor, which is good because then we know that it's, it's actually going to um, take that block that receptor. And it has very slow receptor diso dissociation, which means that it kind of hangs there for a long time, which means even if the patient skips a dose, they're still going to feel the effects of that buprenorphine and not get into withdrawal for, for a little bit. Uh, buprenorphine has a really long half-life, which is really a, a positive thing, but it makes it difficult when you're thinking about how to taper this with a patient. It does have a ceiling effect on central nervous system and respiratory depression, meaning that once you get the receptor saturated, rarely are you going to see central nervous system and respiratory depression. So again, generally 16 milligrams saturates about 99% of your opiate receptors. And um, that's usually the dose that most people will prescribe. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about prescribing later, but sometimes we do go up as high as 24 milligrams and we'll begin that back off as soon as we see those withdrawal symptoms start to abate. It also has a second effect on the mu receptor uh, where it's also a partial agonist. And then it is a agonist uh, on the kappa receptor, which is what possibly gives it its antidepressant and anti-anxiety effects, which patients really do love. So let's take a look at some of the formulations of buprenorphine. Suboxone is the most common, uh, and this is a combination of two of the medications I talked about earlier, sublingual buprenorphine with naloxone. So it has naltrexone already in it. It has been long available as a generic, and you can get it either in films or you can get it in tablets. The tablets and the films can be cut or split. So using this medication in a taper makes it pretty easy to use. Um, it comes in a variety of dosing, both as films and tablets. It comes in eight milligrams with two milligrams of naloxone, four with one and two milligrams of a half a milligram. I have patients who are on Suboxone in all varying um, uh, formulations. And I have patients who are on different dosing. So I have one older gentleman, he's actually on one milligram and a quarter milligram because he takes a half of a strip once a day. 
I have other patients who are on as high as 16 milligrams. So they're taking two eight milligram strips or tablets per day. So again, you can dose this. It's, it's relatively flexible. One of the things about buprenorphine is it does have an FDA indication in a different formulation for pain management. And this falls under a different set of rules and does not fall under this uh, buprenorphine waiver that we've been talking about. Those medications are commonly called um, Belbuca, uh, Buprenex, and uh, Butrans. And so those three medications um, can be used for pain management in patients. It's the same identical formulation that we're talking about here with buprenorphine. Buprenorphine comes as Suboxone, that is um, its brand name, but it also comes as a few others. Subsolve is another brand name of buprenorphine with naltrexone. Bunaval is another one and Probufine. So there are multiple brand names. Um, the one that most people are aware of is Suboxone. Um, as we think about some patients, um, some patients don't tolerate the, the naloxone well. Um, Subutex is a generic sublingual buprenorphine that does not have the naloxone in it. The reason that we don't use routinely use Subutex is because it does, definitely has a higher abuse potential than Suboxone does. So we only use Subutex when a patient has a documented allergy to naloxone or they're unable to tolerate the naloxone because of some side effects. It is less expensive because it doesn't have the naloxone in it. So if there's no abuse potential, um, Subutex is fine to use in certain patients. We always use Subutex in patients who are pregnant. I know that's not your population, but just an aside because it does cause fetal, naloxone can cause fetal damage. All right, another option that we have, which is really great, is called Sublicate. And this is a, a monthly long-acting injectable buprenorphine. Um, it comes either in a 100 mil milligram formulation or in a 300 milligram formulation. Um, and so you're gonna base this off of what your patient is taking as you transition them from uh, Suboxone or buprenorphine with naloxone into Sublicate. Those injections are done in a provider's office. So the patient does come in. It's not an injection the patient takes at home. So they do have to come in. So let's take a minute and talk a little bit about buprenorphine and um, Suboxone as, as I usually prescribe it. Um, when I have a patient who I am going to think about medication assisted treatment for, uh, and they're coming in we wanna get them off of an opiate, the initial dose that I uh, do is generally somewhere in the neighbor of 12 to 24 hours after the last short acting opiate. So that means if they're on heroin, oxycodone or morphine, something like that, I will wait a minimum of 24 hours. Um, usually I say the patient should have maybe a first or even second uh, diarrhea stool before we wanna begin that buprenorphine. If we start buprenorphine too soon, we get something called precipitated withdrawal. So it's better to wait a little bit longer to make sure you're in that sweet spot before you actually have them take that first induction medication. If they're taking longer acting opiates, so extended release morphine like oxycodone, morphine, methadone, or fentanyl, and fentanyl can be very highly variable, 
um, what you wait is 24 to 48 hours. So you really have to wait that longer period. I will tell you that in some patients, I've had trouble inducing folks with fentanyl. So what I've done who have been on fentanyl, so especially fentanyl patches. So what I've done is I've transitioned them from fentanyl patches to oxycodone and then transition them to buprenorphine. So there are ways to do this. It's just making sure that you minimize the patient's withdrawal symptoms. Um, Remember that I said the ceiling effect with buprenorphine is at that 16 milligrams with four milligrams of naloxone a day. And so that's kind of our sweet spot. That ceiling effect lowers the likelihood of misuse and the overdose of suboxone. So patients really um, need to store up a lot of suboxone in order to try to overdose on suboxone. Uh, so this is the ceiling effect also dulls that euphoric or pleasurable effect of the opiate that normally patients get. So on buprenorphine, patients don't get the euphoria that they see with an opiate. Um, and again, because of that ceiling effect, it really does limit the possibility of a suboxone overdose. And that's really important. Um, so what's our next step as we think about administration? So if we're using either the sublingual tablets or films, we make sure that the patient's mouth is moist. So I usually tell them to drink, some, have a little sip of water first, and then they put the film or tablet under their tongue and they have to wait for it to completely dissolve. I remind them that they should not be talking, smoking, and they need to keep kind of their mouth closed till the um, medication is completely dissolved. And patients should try to avoid using any kind of nicotine products or no smoking prior to the administration. In some patients, I actually have them take all 16 milligrams or a full eight milligrams in the morning once a day, as where others, I might split that dose up, especially if they're having an, a wear off effect later in the day. So for some patients, they might get eight milligrams in the morning with their two milligrams of naloxone and then eight in the afternoon, while others, I might just go ahead and tell them to take the whole 16 milligrams in the morning. So there's some really important things they have to remember about making sure that patients actually take it correctly and that they um, are following, following the directions, because if not, it doesn't get completely absorbed and you don't get the entire dose. So it's really important that, that we actually make, make sure patients are doing that. So if you're doing it in a nursing home, just have that patient take that sip of water, put that under the tongue and have them um, remain quiet um, until it's completely um, dissolved and not let them smoke beforehand. Okay, so let's talk about some of the common side effects that people experience with um, buprenorphine. Um, one of the big ones is headache. And the problem is that it parallels with um, the headache that can be caused from naloxone. So sometimes that headache is more related to naloxone and not related to the buprenorphine itself. Also, patients can get a withdrawal symptom. Remember, we're blocking that opiate receptor. And so patients can develop those opiate, um, the withdrawal symptoms. Um, and so we can either do one or two things. We can back off a little bit on the um, suboxone to make that opiate, that withdrawal reduce as you're inducing someone. Or if that's happening while they're taking buprenorphine, you can actually increase the dose a little bit, or you can use some other medications to um, do withdrawal management. 
Some patients definitely have a problem with insomnia. That's why I'll put a patient on all 16 milligrams in the morning, because that generally will help. And um, again, keep them from having sleepless nights. Uh, the one we always have a big problem with is constipation. We know that all, all opiates cause some level of constipation and buprenorphine is going to be along those same lines and cause constipation. And then finally, some people do get a little nausea. Remember that there can be other side effects. Um, again, sometimes patients will actually develop some sweating um, uh, as well as um, other issues that they might, that might bother them. But again, we don't have any life-threatening uh, respiratory depression or central nervous system depression with using buprenorphine because of that ceiling effect. All right, so let's talk a minute about the symptom management of withdrawal. There are a lot of good things that we can do to help patients get through withdrawal. If you've got patients who have a lot of myalgias or restlessness, clonidine is an antihypertensive, so we have to be careful with using it, but I generally prescribe um, 0.1 milligrams four times a day. While this is an off-label use for this, the reason that I like it is because it does have that adrenergic, it's an adrenergic agonist. So remember what I said about withdrawal symptoms occurring because of that alpha adrenergic hyperactivity, that makes this a great drug to help with some of those side effects. If patients get dizzy with it when they stand up, then we have to back off the dose a little bit. Tizanidine, which is a long, is a muscle relaxant that we use, can also be used uh, very similarly. Um, and recently, a new medicine on the market was lofexidine. And this is another blocker. It's an, uh, an alpha blocker similar to clonidine, but it actually in testing failed as an antihypertensive, but it showed great promise in withdrawal. So it's only the only current FDA drug currently that is approved for use as a um, as a um, adjunct in withdrawal management, but it's the same basic generic molecule as clonidine. So um, either one will work. Uh, Lofexidine does have less of that secondary hypotension effect that will cause that dizziness. Um, hydroxazine, 25 to 50 milligrams, four times a day is great for patients who are having some anxiety. In um, patients, I sometimes will start at 10 milligrams and go up, uh, especially if I'm concerned about uh, whether or not uh, they might be affected with dizziness, often they'll get a dry mouth. For other uh, things to do for anxiety, gabapentin often works, starting with 100 uh, three times a day, going up to three times a day, 300 milligrams. Um, and then sometimes if patients aren't sleeping, 600 milligrams at night for sleep can also be added. Uh, trazodone, we all know, is a great PRN for patients to help with sleep. Um, loperamide is great, two milligrams, um, Q4 hours PRN for any kind of diarrhea. Um, and there are other things you can use. You can you know, try things like Pepto-Bismol. Um, and then dicyclamine, either 10 to 20 milligrams for stomach cramps will help. So again, what we're really trying to do is minimize these symptoms of withdrawal so we can get the patient onto the buprenorphine and then wean off these other medications as we are as, as patients are feeling better. Uh, some other things we can try doing if we see that patients are having trouble, if we see that they're having nausea that's not improved, we can also try things like ondansetron, which is Zofran or metoclopramide. Um, 
uh, again, and so some of those can also um, be helpful in trying to manage patients. So let's head on uh, to talk a little bit about buprenorphine maintenance dose. As I said earlier, the usual dose is anywhere between 8.2 to 16.4 per day. Um, it's important to assess the need for ongoing maintenance. As patients remain on the medication, you can begin to see if it's time for them to, to kind of test the waters to wean down a little bit. Um, it's important that we address any co-occurring disorder. So that means if patients are having other mental health symptoms, um, we want to make sure we get those in line as well. Um, and if they're having any other comorbid medical problems like diabetes or uh, hypertension, we want to make sure those are in line as well. Um, and then as we're beginning to wean off the buprenorphine, that's our time to integrate other pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic strategies to help that patient start that um, weaning process um, before we're, we're actually ready to completely wean off of the buprenorphine. So what does tapering look like? So there's very limited evidence-based practice information on suboxone tapering protocols. We just, we just don't have information. Um, there's a lot of um, comments about trying short versus long tapers. Um, and in some patients, we may need to manage some withdrawal symptoms during that taper. And we've talked about how to do that. Uh, in some patients here, I might also do a quick switch from Suboxone to Subutex as I'm making that switch. Um, and that will unblock some of those opiate receptors. And so sometimes that will help that tapering process along a little bit. And so this is what a tapering protocol might look like. Stepping down from 16 to 14 and 12 and 10, generally those two milligrams per month, they can go relatively smoothly. Once you get a patient somewhere in the neighborhood of two milligrams to four milligrams a day, you really need to slow down the tapering process. And we actually slow it down as much as going a half a milligram per day um, and then eventually tapering off. I've had patients where I've had to taper them over sometimes 18 months to actually get them completely off the medicine. But I always look at it like get, getting the taper completed and whether it takes 12 months or 18 months, as long as the end of the day, we still get to the right place, we're good. If a patient develops breakthrough withdrawal symptoms, you can begin first by trying to manage them with medications we've already talked about. But if you're unable to do that, oftentimes I'll go back up to the next available dose that was without symptoms, and I'll hold a couple more months before I try to taper again. Dr. Vanacourt, thank you so much for this presentation and for joining us today. And we hope everyone here can join us again next week. Thank you, Kathy. If you would like to contact Dr. Denise Vanacourt, you can reach her at drvanacourt at outlook.com. That's D-R-V-A-N-A-C-O-R-E at outlook.com. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia 